Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Thursday, October the 13th, 2022. It is currently 5.03 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where I continue, I continue to have interruptions. I continue to have things that keep me from sitting here in front of the microphone, but hopefully all of that is over for the day. So I don't know how many live broadcasts I can get in this evening, but I'm going to do what I can. Hopefully we will have some interesting conversations, some interesting studies, something to challenge you, something to make you think, but you know where we must start today. All right, we have to go back to the book of Amos because we are so, so very far behind. So we're going to return to the book of Amos. If you haven't been with us, we've been studying the book of Amos now for a very long time. This is like part 24. It's like, this is like 20, this will make what, 24 hours of study on the book of Amos. That's absolutely crazy if you really think about it. Hopefully you have found it to be beneficial. Hopefully you found it to be very helpful. The Bible study exercise series is designed to get you from being a passive listener to an active participant. You really get the most out of this when you grab a notebook, a Bible, a pencil, some reference reference tools, and dig in using the curriculum and, and participating in the assignments. That's when you really, really, really benefit from this. The goal is to actually get you to study the Bible. So each episode is is always unique and different. Sometimes I'm just giving assignments. Sometimes I'm just asking questions. Sometimes I'm teaching. Sometimes I'm teaching like I don't have a clue where we're going just to try to get you involved in the process. Every time it's a, it's, it's a different approach. But what we've been doing now here for the book of Amos is because we were given permission by the ministry of the late Dr. J. Vernon McGee to use their content. So we've been using the teaching of Dr. J. Vernon McGee on Amos, and we kind of been using it in a, and, and not almost like what I do a sermon review. It's more like, here's what he's saying, and then I offer my thoughts and perspectives. So you are really getting two perspectives at the exact same time, and hopefully you're finding that beneficial. I gave you the most comprehensive book Bible study method ever put into existence to help you really use that method, and hopefully you've been doing that. So if, you, if you've missed everything, please go back and listen to the entire series on the book of Amos. But we don't want to waste any time because we are so far behind. Uh, We have a long ways to go. So we're going to jump in. I don't think I'm going to be able to finish Amos chapter 5 in this episode, but I'm going to get as far as we can, and then um, I'll come back later, finish it, and then maybe tonight we'll do six. We We need to take a trip back to Indiana. We need to finish our review of the youth conference messages, so we need to do that. Oh, a, well, oh. There's something we definitely need to talk about. We may do that later tonight. We, I definitely think it, it would be a good late night broadcast. We need to do that. So much going on, so much happening, but we'll get to all of that later. Right now, the focus is. In fact, it's always good to start. Whenever you got all of these other things you want to talk about, it's always good to first and just discipline yourself to always start with the Word of God. That's where we need to start with. So the book of Amos. The book of Amos. I'm I'm getting ready to say, I don't know why I was getting ready to say the book of Hosea, but the book of Amos, maybe because my Bible uh, got, because of the fan, switched pages on me. But the book of Amos, 
chapter five. Are you ready? We're not going to go back and review everything. Uh, there, there's an interesting part at the end of chapter four, really that last vo- verse of chapter four, but I'm not going to read it because I'll start talking about it. But I think it's going to show up in a podcast episode today or, or maybe tomorrow, maybe tonight, maybe at some point. You'll see. We, we have a have a new podcast that I'm thinking of, a, a kind of a maybe a podcast series, a new, maybe a standalone podcast. I think it's a good idea. I kind of threw the idea out there the other day, and most of you did not respond, but a few people did, and they thought it was a great idea. And so um, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Right now, I got to finish up all the other things that we're working on, but are you ready? Amos chapter five. Thinking caps on. Here we go. The prophet Amos, right? From the southern kingdom of Judah, sent to the northern kingdom of Israel. Bring God's message to them, one of judgment, one of condemnation. What's going to happen in chapter five? Here we go. Now we come to chapter five here. And in chapter five, Israel will be punished in the future for her iniquity. Now, will you listen to this as we begin in these first verses here? God pleads with them to seek him so that judgment could be averted. Now, it is true that there seemed to be a finality at the end of the last chapter, but that was what God had done in the past. They were warning, and as long as... So if you think about it this way, in chapter 4, God had reminded them of what he had done to them in the past. That was chastisement. God had brought chastisement upon them in the past to to make them return to the Lord, but they had not yet returned to the Lord. And and yesterday I asked, I think, a very profound question. Didn't get a lot of emails about it, but I asked this question that does external chastisement cause us to return to the Lord, or does it have to be a work of God's grace internally? Is it external chastisement that causes someone to return to God, or is it an internal work of grace? Well, they refuse to return to the Lord in chapter 4, and in chapter 5, now it sounds like, according to Dr. J. Vernon McGee, we'll see if this plays out, that now he's, you've, you have been chastised, now you're going to be judged chastisement really isn't judgment. It's really discipline. It's really, it's really almost kind of a, a, lo- a loving plea or, or, or attempt to pull you back. Judgment is, well, more in, in a condemning way. Let's, so just, I think there's an interesting distinction there, but I still, um, I, I still think that it's it's an interesting concept to consider. Does does external chastisement cause someone to return to God, or is it an internal work of grace? I think I think there's there's something there. I, I haven't got it all fleshed out yet. I love I love to do that in my in in this in my teaching. Some of you catch on, some of you don't. I love to just throw out an idea, right? I'll just be talking, I'll throw out an idea, and I'll just leave it. I just leave it, and then I look and wait and wait and see. Does someone out there going? That was, I caught it. I caught, that was really good. That, but, or maybe people don't think it's really that good. Maybe you don't even think it's an interesting point. I think it's an interesting point, right? So maybe a discussion will break out somewhere about it. Maybe, maybe, or, but we'll get to that later. Let's continue with chapter five. As he did not bring that final stroke of judgment, which was their captivity, then there was hope for them. 
Now, will you listen to him in verse 1 of chapter 5? Hear this word, which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. Now, this is a dirge that he... It's interesting. We have this concept of a lamentation. We've done some podcasts about lamentations and the importance of lamentations. Um, and well, there's so much we could go back to on there. We'll see how uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee handled the concept of a lamentation. We may be talking about a lamentation, well, later this evening. We, we may have a theme emerging here. We may be talking about lamentations. We, we, we may. So you'll, we'll, you'll just have to stick around and see where the, everything's going to go before the evening is out. But let's see what D- Dr. J. Vernon McGee did with the concept of lamentation in Amos chapter 5. He's taking up. It's as it were, he's singing a funeral song. It's a very sad one now. And he speaks like this, and now it's with tenderness. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. Now, you remember that when Hosea began his prophecy... He had an experience in the home. He'd married a harlot. And now God sent him out to speak to the nation. And he's saying to the northern kingdom, you're a harlot, but God still loves you. Now here, Amos says, you were a virgin. God espoused you to himself. That's the picture of every believer today. Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, I espoused you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And when we came to him, our sins are all forgiven, and we start new with him. But how about it, friend? How's it been going the past few years? Have you done what Israel did? Have you played the harlot, turned away from him, and have been led astray into the world and into the things of the flesh? And as the devil put a ring in your nose and leading you around like a pig that has a ring in his snout that's being led around, a great many, even Christians, are like that today. This is a sad funeral dirge, you see. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There's none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred. You see why he said, prepare to meet your God. Now, I'm going to at least throw this out there, kind of a special uh, a special assignment. I don't want you to spend too much time on it, but I do want you to maybe just look up four or five cross-references and maybe just write like a very, 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 very short paragraph on the concept of spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery, in the especially in the American church, any kind of sexual sin is an immediate scandal. The end of the end. I mean, it's the end of everything. It's the end of life. It's the end of existence. It's the end of usefulness. It's the end of of qualification. It's the end of breathing. Sexual sin still is like scandalous in the and even in the American church. But spiritual adultery, so, so physical adultery, boom, the end of everything. Spiritual adultery doesn't have that same level of scandal. 
I mean, you can, if you commit physical adultery, it's the end of the world. You can commit spiritual adultery and you're perfectly okay. I mean, you're, you're, you're not disqualified from anything. You're good to go. It's fine. But what is spiritual adultery? Israel constantly finds itself in, 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 in basically committing spiritual whoredom, spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness. What does what did what did it look like as how does the Old Testament describe in a sense spiritual adultery, spiritual whoredom using more the King James language, but what what would that look like for us? So I want you to just find four or five verses that kind of really describe what spiritual adultery was, and then try to consider what would that look like for us. I don't want you to turn it into like a massive assignment, just a little bit of extra. Just a little bit of extra here, because he kind of mentioned it here with her being referred to as a virgin. She was the chaste virgin, but she has fallen. She has fallen. She's been corrupted. Well, Israel did that over and over and over and over and over and over again. Okay, well, it's great to point my finger at Israel. How am I guilty of spiritual adultery? Am I, in a sense, a spiritual, I'm going to be blunt using the language, especially the King James, like a spiritual whore? We'll need to work a little bit on that, but I think that's something we need to consider. All right, let's continue. Look at the number that are to be slain, and that which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. And those are the ones that will be left back in the land. And then the great company, a percentage of them were slain. Now, listen to him. This is, as it were, a last call to the nation— Verse 4, For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. The invitation is still open. The word had gone out. Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing." And by the way, you can't find Bethel today. I've had two different spots pointed out to me by guides back there, and I'm not sure just where it is. The location, you can pretty well know that is the area, but to be able to pinpoint it seems to be a problem. And did you notice he told them not to even go as far south as Beersheba? But when he talks about the two, Gilgal and Bethel, are coming to nothing... He doesn't mention Beersheba. Why? Because Beersheba will go in captivity over a hundred years later when the southern kingdom goes into captivity. But now Gilgal and Bethel will come to nothing. They go into captivity. Now he says, though, here, there's still hope for you. Verse 6, Seek the Lord and ye shall live. What a wonderful invitation it is. And he says, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. In other words, God says, if you don't turn to me, then I will have to judge you. But notice as he goes on, he says here, and I pick up now in verse 7, ye who turn justice to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth. Now, friends, we're in an area where the liberal years ago used to make a great deal of this section of the Scripture. He presented a work salvation, 
and he found justification for it here. Well, unfortunately, he didn't consider the entire message because the condition of these people was a condition of which they were going through the form of worship that God had prescribed. They were offering sacrifices, and they were going through a ritual that God had given to them. But you see, their lives did not commend their profession. In other words, their practice did not equal the profession that they made. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan said years ago that he was more afraid of the blasphemy of the secular than he was of the blasphemy of the sanctuary. Now, a great many people think, oh, it's terrible. You know, if you don't just sit just right in church and you don't dare laugh and you must participate. And if you go through all the forms and ritual, you're very pious. But if you don't do that, why, it's like blasphemy to do something in the sanctuary that isn't according to the Mosaic system or today according to the ritual of the church. But my friend, I don't feel myself the danger's there. The danger is that the man that goes to church and sings the doxology, prays God from whom all blessings flow, and then is living outside a life in which he is not honest, there's no justice in his life whatsoever, and there's no righteousness in this man's life, then may I say that's the blasphemy of the secular, or the blasphemy of the street. And that is the thing that God is condemning. I understand what he's saying, but I think in this particular case, especially if you go back to chapter 4, wasn't the blasphemy in the worship. It wasn't the blasphemy of the secular. It was the blasphemy of the worship because they worshiped in a way. Remember, come to, to Bethel, come to Gilgal, transgress, increase the number of transgressions. There was a blasphemy of the sanctuary because they were coming to the sanctuary, going through the motions, but it meant absolutely nothing. He's like, he's like, it's almost like, hey, if you, if you go to church and then you go out there and you don't live according to it, then there's the blasphemy of the secular. I, I, I guess, well, you, you can tell me what you think. There, there's a lot there I would try to, to take apart. Yeah, there, there's a lot there we could discuss. There's a lot of different directions we could go. We'll just, we'll kind of just throw out some of the thoughts right there because I don't want to, because if, if I'm not careful, I'll stop myself right here and go, okay, guys, we're going to spend the next six months on this. We, but we'll see if we need to come back to it. We'll need to see if we need to come back to it. And these people, not that a living faith in Christ is not essential. It's absolutely essential for your salvation the trust in Christ. But my friend, if you make a profession of trusting Christ, and then your life outside does not command the gospel at all, then may I say to you, there's not but one word, and it's a harsh word. But the Lord Jesus is the one who used it more than anyone else. He said to the religious rulers of his day, 
ye hypocrites. Now, I do understand the problem with hypocrisy, but I, I get nervous when we use language like your life does not commend the gospel. Your life does not live up to the gospel. The gospel is a message of you're, you are so messed up. You're such a sinner. You're so disobedient that you need someone else to save you and you need someone else's righteousness. So how can my righteous actions commend the gospel my sin would demonstrate why I need the gospel. You could make an argument. Your sin demonstrates to everyone the need for the gospel. So um, I, I, I do understand that you could say my profession in following Christ, my, my profession of Christianity sometimes isn't my actions does not commend that. But as far as using the word the gospel, my sin shows everyone why I need the gospel. Not saying that we, that means we should go out and sin to demonstrate that, but we're going to sin. But I do understand the problem with hypocrisy. I, I think to me, what we, what we, I guess we could ask a question here. Is hypocrisy simply the inconsistency of living out and practice what you believe or is hypocrisy the pretending that you're living out what you believe when you're not? Like, what truly, is it simply inconsistency that makes you a hip, hip, hypocrite? Or is it the pretending? Is it the, the acting like you are doing right when you're not? See, I tend to see hypocrisy more as you're pretending to be righteous. You're pretending to be godly. You're putting on a mask, pretending to be so self-righteous when you're not. I don't see simply being inconsistent with the standards and the morality of Scripture as being hip hypocritical because we all fall short of that. Again, I can give you three Scriptures. I say this all the time. There's, there's three very interesting scriptures that we're all, in a sense, hypocrites of if we simply say inconsistency equals hypocrisy. Be holy as God is holy. You've never fulfilled that. You never will fulfill that. So does that make you a hypocrite? Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You've never done that. Does that make you a hypocrite? Love your neighbor as yourself. Does that make you a hypocrite? Now, it makes you a hypocrite if you pretend that you're holy as God is holy, that you love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, that you love your neighbor as yourself. If you put on some fake religiosity, a robe of self-righteousness, and walk around pretending that you've got it all figured out, pretending that you're godly, that to me is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not the mere existence of my inconsistent consistency with it because I can never be consistent with that. That's why I need the gospel. God's standards constantly condemn me, so I'm always inconsistent with it. Is his hypocrisy the pretending? the putting on the mask, or is it simply inconsistency? Sometimes the preachers preach it as, hey, you claim to love, you know, you claim to, to love God, but you don't do this or you do this. You do, you're a hypocrite. Well, wait a minute. Then we're all hypocrites because none of us live a consistent life with God's standards. It's our pretending. It's our denying and covering up our sin. A lot of times people say the original term hip hypocrite was referred to someone wearing a mask that that in ancient times in theater, people would play different characters by simply holding a mask up to their face, right? It's being an actor. Well, if hypocrisy is, 
pretending or being an actor, pretending to be a character, then then true hypocrisy is where you pretend to be without sin. You pretend, but as a Christian, if you are confessing and acknowledging your failure and your inconsistency, then that doesn't make you a hypocrite in my mind. But typically hypocrisy is like, no, 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 no. You you don't, your life, your life, your life doesn't live up to it. Your life doesn't live up to it. Well, whose life does? Who's look at look at the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. Does any of their lives live up to it? No, maybe in specific situations you could say, look, 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 they did this, they did, but there's plenty in their life that wasn't. You can give me your thoughts on how we should understand hypocrisy. That is his word. I didn't think of that one. He thought of it. He said, ye hypocrites. And it is brazen hypocrisy today. And why were the Pharisees and Sadducees called ye hypocrites? Because they acted they pretended. They acted like they kept the law. They they would have told you they keep the law. They would have told you they keep the Ten Commandments. But they did not. It was their self-righteousness. They cleaned up the outside to look righteous, but they weren't. It's not just the inconsistency. It was the acting. It was the pretending. Either in the pulpit or in the pew, when statements are made and a profession is given and a protestation of our wonderful love for Christ and how we trust Him and then go out and live a life that condemns the very gospel that we are supposed to be professing. Again, I don't know how our sin can condemn the gospel because the gospel is about saving condemned people. How can my sin condemn the gospel because the gospel is a message of saving condemned people who don't deserve it? That is the thing that he's talking about here, friends. And that is the thing that hurts today. A great many Christians do not want this mentioned because of the fact that they're very active in Christian work, but they're not very active living for the Lord on the outside. Their life in business, their social life is certainly not that. I had a man once, he was very active in the church. I don't think there was an organization in the church that he wasn't active in. And he got involved with a lady in the choir. And may I say to you, if he dropped out for a time and without making any amends, without apparently any change of life whatsoever, the man wanted to come back into active service. Well, I absolutely condemn that sort of thing, and I was made the guilty party because of it. May I say to you today, friends, this idea of making a profession and then not living up to it, now that is the thing that is basic in the message of Amos. You see, God had to bring this man. Again, you make a profession, you don't live up to it. What is required to live up to it? Do you have to love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Do you have to love your neighbor as yourself? And you, do you have to be as holy as God is holy? If that's the requirement to live up to your profession, 
than no one does. That I, I Christians say sometimes the weirdest things. You got to live up to your profession. Okay, what is exactly right? And you know what it always is? It's always like, well, then you it, it you avoid. In other words, you you avoid mortal sins. It, it's, what, it's what it always comes down to. These are the big ones. Don't if you commit this, you're not living up to your profession. Now you can commit all of these smaller ones, and you're still living up to your profession. It's such a game we play. Nobody lives up to their profession. No one, no one. Some don't live up to their profession publicly. No one lives up to their profession privately because we're all sinners. Way up from down south in the southern kingdom, way out in the country, he had to get a man down there that, would give this kind of a message because those paid preachers up there in Bethel and Samaria, they're saying what the people want to say. Someone has made the statement, in fact, a leading Bible expositor made the statement several years ago. He says, the modern pulpit has become a sounding board for the thinking of the congregation. In other words... They are heaping to themselves teachers with itching ears. Their ears itch to hear something nice and sweet. And then they go up and pat the preacher on the back and tell him how sweet he is. And he's got itching ears and that scratches them, you know. And so it's like the old Egyptian game. You scratch my back and I'll scratch your back and we both will have a good time. And so that is the way that a great deal is carried on today in our churches. Liberalism has done it for years. And, of course, today we find it in many Christians. And when I say Christian, I mean conservative circles. And these people were insulted when this man even suggested that they were not very religious and very pious. Now, that is the thing that he's saying here. Now, listen to him again. He's not through with this. Verse 8, he says again, and it's God's gracious call. God is long-suffering, and God is lots more patient than I would be, and I found out that I need to learn to be patient with the patience of God. How long-suffering and patient he is. Now, seek him who maketh the seven stars and Orion and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with night, who calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. That is, it's God who makes the rain fall. Somebody says, oh, I know that it has to do with the law of hydrodynamics. And sure, but who made the law of hydrodynamics? Who is the one that pulls the water up out of the ocean and then puts it on a train. They call him clouds. And he moves them over by the wind. And when they get over in the right place, well, they turn loose and rain. Who is it that does that? Well, God's the one that's doing that, friends. And Amos says, the Lord is his name. He said, you've turned to these idols and your life does not command your faith in a living God, and the living God is the Creator. And Orion, of course, is one of the 
many constellations in the heaven, and it was the one, of course, familiar to these people in that day. Verse 9, "...who strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoil shall come against the fortress. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly." Now, the one that rebukes in the gate would be a judge. You see, the courthouse of that day was the gate of the walled city. You will find all the way through Scripture, that's where the judges sat, was at the gate. That's where Boaz, you remember, got the other kinsmen at the gate of Bethlehem. And when Lot went down to Sodom, he got in politics down there, and you find him sitting in the gate. What is he doing there? Well, he was a judge. And so here we have the judge that was rebuking that which was wrong. He was the one that was hated. And therefore, most of the judges were very dishonest. And they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. When a judge insisted upon justice and upon that which is right, well, he became very unpopular. I'm not sure that human nature has changed very much. Now, will you notice verse 11? For as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor, they are the ones that do not get justice. I know that. I've been on that side of the line a long time. And ye take from him burdens of wheat. Ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. And those beautiful palaces that were built at Samaria are in ruins today, and they were destroyed shortly after this message was given. Been in ruins now for several thousand years, almost 3,000. Now, verse 12, "...for I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe. They turn aside the poor in the gate from their right." In other words, the poor cannot get justice in the court of that day. Has it changed today? Unless you're able, friends, to employ a very expensive lawyer, which means one that is clever and knows how to, you know, to get around the edge of the law without really breaking it, but it sure do bend it up pretty well. And unless you can pay for that sort of thing, why, you find out you have to pay right through the nose. And who is it that pays? Now, one of the reasons for repealing the death penalty was because the rich man could always escape the gas chamber or the electric chair. Now, I do not think that that was a legitimate reason, but the facts were true. The poor man, when he's found guilty, didn't stand a chance. The rich man could keep appealing the case, and it took him a long time to find his way to the jail. In fact, he never even got there in many cases. So that God takes notice of those things. And when there's not justice in a nation, you see, God has turned over to human government today to run this earth. And the nations of the earth are God's arrangement but he holds them accountable. And when they fail, he removes them. Rome was removed from the scene. And we're going to talk about that later. But now let me move on here. Verse 13, 
Verse 13, Therefore the prudent shall keep silence at that time, for it's an evil time. In other words, a man in that day knows he can't get justice, and many good people were keeping quiet. And it was the prudent thing to do, because if he attempted to protest, it wouldn't do him a bit of good. And the tragedy of the hour in which we're living today is that we talk about the freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and freedom of speech. There's not much of that left today, because the press and news media today is definitely become a brainwashing agency. And I just love how Amos is directed at the people of God and how when preachers preach it, we take the sins and apply it to the sins of the world, to the sins of the secular nation. This is towards God. This is God's nation, God's people who have a covenant with God. So, so we should look at these sins and how it shows up in the lives of believers. I, I, I'm always baffled by how pastors do this. They're like, ooh, look at these sins. It's, it's, look at the nation. Look at the news media. Look at politicians. Look at that. Look at liberals. Look at, the, look at them. 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 How about look at us? Look at us. 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 How does this show up in the church? where we treat people with a, a lack of justice. We treat people incorrectly. Shouldn't the application be towards how God's people act in society? It's not how the society acts. It's how Christians act within society, how Christians treat the poor, how Christians treat justice, how Christians. Like if you're going to make it applicable, don't apply this to the lost and dying world. Apply it to the people of God. These are the words of a prophet sent to the people of God, to the nation. So I, I, I of God, to in a sense, to the a nation under with a covenant with God. I don't know why preachers loved it. It's just it's it, it's almost second nature for a preacher. Oh, look at that! Boom, boom! Look at the world! 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 Let's talk about their music, their movies, their politics. And I don't get why Christians are so preoccupied with everyone else's sin. How about we focus on what Christians do in the world? It is true today that only that which has money can get a public hearing. And as a result, you do have a silent majority in this country because they know that their voice would not amount to anything at all. But we are in a tragic day. And that was the day Israel had come to. Verse 14, Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. Again he calls upon them to turn to him, so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. Hate the evil. This is verse 15. Hate the evil, love the good, and establish justice in the gate, that is, in the courtroom, until the poor can get justice and not some liberal with some rich organization back of him why he can betray our government. See, he's, it's all about the world, the world, the world, the world, the world, the world. This would be applicable to Christians and how we conduct ourselves in the world. These, these things that Israel is being judged for, the injustice, the, all of these things, this is, that, that's the way the world always operates. 
The world always operates with violence and deceit and a lack of justice and greed. That's that's because the world is dominated clearly and obviously by a rejection of any morality that comes from God. Right? So we shouldn't expect the world to act right. We shouldn't expect justice in the world. It's always going to be corrupt. But the people of God who live in the world, we are the ones called then to carry ourselves differently. Now, we're going to fall short of that, but this should be applied to how Christians live. I don't know why this is being preached as focused on what the world is doing. I don't understand it. The message is to Israel. Israel's in a covenant with God. They're God's people. They're being said, you're not living up to the word of God, to God's laws and standards. This should be time for you to reflect on your life. Are are you guilty of these things? Are you guilty of, of hating him that would rebuke you for wrong? Are you the one who treads on the poor? Are you the one who does these kinds of things? And escape. In fact, he's made a hero. But some poor fellow that is espousing an honest cause, he doesn't stand a chance, friends. God says here, hate the evil, love the good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Now, there's still hope for you, he says. It's slim, but there's hope for you. Now, in verse 16 here, he moves into another area. There is the warning of approaching judgment. And that, of course, is the day of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, wailing shall be in all the streets. They shall say in all the highways, alas, alas, and they shall call the farmer to mourning, and such as are skillful in lamentation to wailing, why? And in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. The judgment of famine that we saw back in the last chapter, all of that was a warning. And it caused a great many people to very piously say, he puts it here as a woe, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. There are a great many people today who are saying, oh, if the Lord would come. And for them, it's nothing in the world but a pious sentiment. And for them, it's not going to be as pleasant as they think it's going to be. Now, I read, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Again, we have that expression, the day of the Lord. Joel is one of the first of the writing prophets. Is it possible that woe unto you who long for the day of the Lord? Is this a possibility that it's, that this is a reference to someone who's like, oh, I want the day of the Lord to come because they don't realize their own sin. They don't see their own sin. Is is, Is the issue here, not that they just think it's no big deal, but they don't realize their own guilt before God. Yes, in a sense, come Lord. But they don't see the fact that his coming is going to bring judgment upon them. I, 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 you, you can tell me what you think. You can tell me what you think. All right, let, let's continue. And he's the one that introduces that subject. 
and every one of the prophets after him has something to say about it. And we need to be very careful because I'm sure many of us always thought the day of the Lord was the millennium. I'll be very frank with you. I was taught that at the beginning, that the day of the Lord was the millennium. Well, Joel was very careful, and Amos now, who is the prophet in the northern kingdom, as Joel was in the southern, to make clear that the day of the Lord is not like its darkness. In other words, the day of the Lord begins with judgment and moves on to the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom down here upon this earth. Now, there are great many... All right, someone just asked, uh, maybe they're waiting for the day of the Lord uh, because they want the other nations to be judged. That's, uh, but it, but uh, I, I, that, I, that's a very good point, and it would go along, I think, with my idea. Yeah, they, they're like, hey, bring the day of the Lord, judge them because they don't see their own sin, their own, their own problem. Hey, come on, Lord, get rid of this nation. Get rid of this. Get rid of them. 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 Never us, which would then kind of go with the problem of the way he's interpreting the chapter, which is look at the sins of the world, look at the sins of the world. No, how about you look at the sins of the church? How about you look at the sins of the believer? So either way, I think that that would be, I think in a roundabout way, we would be saying the same thing. Hey, they want the day of the Lord. They want the day of the Lord to come. They want the day of the Lord to come to judge the other nations because they don't see their own rebellion. I, I, I think that that's, I think that that's, I, I think that that's, what um, I think that's the best way to look at it is that that maybe that's the issue and they, they don't they don't see it. And, and again, it, it's kind of I it's kind of ironic if that's if that's true, then his interpretation of this is really doing the same thing. God's going to judge them. God's going to judge them. Look at the world. Look at the world. Uh, the, the court systems are, in, are corrupt. Look at this. Politicians. And look at this. The, the justice system is messed up. Judging everything else, but not seeing that, no, this is supposed to be applied to us as believers. Commentators, and I say a great many. I don't have too many on Joel, but I have several that feel like that the people were becoming rather cynical, and they are really ridiculing the day of the Lord. Now, I don't see that here at all. In fact, I don't see how that interpretation could possibly be true. I see it on the opposite side, that a great many of these people became very pious. You see, they were going through the ritual, the Mosaic ritual, but they were also worshiping idols. In other words... It was just religion to them. That is all that church-going is to a great many people today. There's nothing vital, nothing real. There's no reality to go through a ritual. And that's the reason so many church services are so dead. And I mean dead is because of the fact that you have there nothing in the world but a ritual that you're going through. Now, it may be beautiful, it may appeal to your eyes, it may appeal to your ears, but does it change your life? Is it transforming? Is it something that you take out with you into the marketplace that you can live by? There are a great many people, and I want you to hear this very carefully, and I'm saying it very carefully today. There are a great many people who are very pious today among those that are 
premillennial and pre-trib. We say, oh, if the Lord would only come. Well, do you really want him to come? Or are you using the rapture of the church as sort of an escape mechanism? It is to get you out of your trouble down here. It's to deliver you from your trouble. It's like the fellow that I tell you about when I was in seminary. When we were studying Hebrew and we'd come out from the dining room of the evening and he'd look up. We had a hard Hebrew lesson for the next day, as well as a Greek lesson. And he would say, oh, if the Lord would only come tonight. Well, what was he after? He didn't want to stay Hebrew. And I never shall forget when he graduated. He was to graduate one night. He was to get married the next night and then go on his honeymoon. And I never shall forget the night before graduation. He came out and he looked up and he says, I sure hope the Lord won't be coming now for several days. Well, my friend, may I say to you, I'm afraid a great many of us look at the rapture like that. This man, Amos, said, you pious folk that are just going through the religious ritual and you're worshiping idols, the day of the Lord is not something that you ought to desire because it's not light. It is a day of darkness and not light at all. You go through a great tribulation period when the day of the Lord comes. What you want to do is to jump into the millennium. Now, let me be very careful and say something. For those of us today who believe the church will not go through the great tribulation period, my friends, some of us are going to think we got into it after we get to heaven. You know why? Will you listen to what Paul had to say? Now, I'm reading 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. He says, "...wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ." This is the Bema. This is not the great white throne at all. Here is where Christians come. For what reason? That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Is this salvation? No. Paul says there's no other foundation any man can lay. But you can build on that. And you can build with wood, hay, and stubble. You can build with gold and silver, precious stone. But every man's work, not his salvation, not his person, every man's work shall be tested by fire. Now, if any man's work survives the fire, he'll receive a ward. But suppose it doesn't. Paul says he'll be saved, but so is by fire. And that's the reason I make the statement oftentimes that a great many people, they're saved. I grant that, but they're going to smell like they were bought at a fire sale when they get to heaven because everything they did down here, they did in the flesh. They did it for some earthly reason, for some present satisfaction. And I want to be very frank and say this to you today, that Vernon McGee, as he's getting toward the sunset, I'm no longer on the young side, like to kid myself sometimes to think I might be, but I want to say this to you very candidly. I'm wondering how I'm going to come out up there. You say, oh, you have the through the Bible. And so many say, I'm going to get a great reward. 
You don't know me like I know myself. If you did, you'd turn the radio off. Well, wait a minute, don't turn it off, because if I knew you like you know yourself, I wouldn't want to talk to you. You see, friends, our life that we've lived down here as believers is to be tested today. And it's pious nonsense to run around today and pretend to be so interested in the coming of Christ. When some of us get to heaven, we'll think we didn't miss the great tribulation. Because notice what Paul said after he gave the statement that we'd all be tested at the bame of Christ. He says, "...knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade man." And I'm trying to persuade you today, friends, that when you appear in his presence, if you think that he's going to pin a nice little Sunday school medal on you because you didn't miss Sunday school for 15 years, I think you're wrong. I don't think that that's going to come up. I think that the life that you live in your home, your witness in your business, your social life, your contact with the opposite sex, these are the things that are going to come before the judgment seat of Christ. And the things that were done in the body down here. Do you want to go up there now? Have you got everything straightened out? Paul says if we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. And that's the reason today I'm trying to keep everything confessed up. I'm running short accounts with the Lord today. I'm confessing everything. You know why? Because if I don't, he's going to straighten it out up there someday. When you lost your temper and you gave a wrong witness, and today you gossiped and said something about a believer. The judgment, the Bema seat, as it's sometimes referred to, where our works are going to be judged, it, I, I think we have, I, now I, I'm very appreciative that he makes it very clear it's not for salvation, and that even if all of my works burn completely up and there's none left, I still will be saved because my salvation is based off the imputed righteousness of Christ. I'm very thankful and very much in agreement with him of that. But this judgment, we 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 take it and we we start running with it. You know, you're going to be judged for this. You're going to be judged for this. You're going to be judged for this. And if you do this wrong, 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 it's going to be horrifying. I I don't know. I don't know if that's the right way to understand it. I think there's a lot of mystery to it, right? Because it doesn't, and, and Paul in Second Corinthians doesn't give us a lot of information. I think it's important because we do need to understand we will, there, our works will be tested by fire and they will either burn up. And it's and depending on the type of works we have, whether they're going to last or whether they're going to burn up and then reward. I, I, we can't deny that. The text is pretty clear about it. But we, we take it and it's just like, well, if you've done this and if you've done this and well, some of those things you're referring to are sins. I don't think my the judgment of my works is going to bring up all of my sins. I, 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 I that I, you know, how you did this and how you did this. I think we have to be careful not to we almost create we, we create a narrative that may go beyond what the text says my works are going to be judged depending on the quality of my works now what exactly does that mean we can look into that i don't know really i see kind of why he's going in that direction i don't know if this is the time to try to take that apart here in amos but i, I just make sure we understand first our salvation is not impacted by that 
but be very careful not to go beyond what the text says. It's easy to get caught up in the preaching of it going, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you did this. And I think that that can be detrimental and almost make it sound like, well, then what's the point of the imputed righteousness? Well, I, well, I get to heaven, but I'm still going to be humiliated and shamed and embarrassed and, and, and terrified. Like, I, I think we have to try to make sure we understand exactly what's going on there. But obviously the goal here is to understand Amos. So I think maybe this is a little, he's kind of chasing something that maybe we shouldn't. I understand what he's trying to do because He's like, why why do these people seem to long for the day of the Lord? Woe unto them. How is that applicable to us as believers? So I see what he's trying to do. I just don't know if that's the time to, to go into that discussion. But let's just, he's only got a couple of minutes left. Let's let him finish it out. Do you think that when you get in the presence of Christ, that he's going to pat you on the back and say what a nice little fellow you are? He's going to straighten that out. Things have to be made right in heaven, friends. And that's the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ. And believe me, Amos is putting it on the line. He says, cut out this nonsense you desire, the day of the Lord. It's not light. It's darkness. There's a great tribulation you'll go through. And there is the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't think it's going to be as pleasant as some folk think it's going to be. Now, verse 19. As if a man, this man here, Amos, and I have to say again how I admire him. He's one of the most dramatic preachers that you have in the Scripture. He uses figurative language. He uses the idiom of the earth. He draws his illustrations from nature, and he makes striking statements. Now we're coming to one, and we've got quite a few more to follow. He says, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. Here's a man that's out hunting or in the woods, as probably Amos had been. And there's a lion down the trail back of him. And he starts around running in the opposite direction. And now he sees a bear coming toward him. In other words, when you say that you want the Lord to come and your motive is that you want to get out of your troubles down here, then it's sort of like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. I think that is our bromide that we use today. And now he's got another, or leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Well, suppose the man sees the lion coming and the bear from the opposite direction, and he takes out up over the hill, and he gets to his home, and he goes inside of his home, and it was made out of these rocks in that day. And he puts his hand up on the wall to sort of rest and get his breath. And here comes out a serpent and bit him. Well, it had been better if the bear had got him or the lion had gotten him than to have the poison of the serpent in him. So he's saying here, you better be very sure about the life that you're living for God down here because salvation is not in jeopardy. Christ paid the penalty for your sins. But your sins as a believer, if they're not dealt with down here, you don't make them right. He's going to make them right, friends. He has to do that. He's holy and righteous and just. And heaven is a place where things are right. And therefore, you and I'll have to be right when we get there. That is something a great many do not realize today. Now, verse 20, he says, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? 
even very dark, and no brightness in it. You go through that period, and that was the period that is yet to come upon the nation Israel. It's a period, actually, of judgment, and we'll deal with it later in a more detailed fashion, but it's labeled the day of the Lord. But that doesn't end it, because in the day of the Lord, you have the second coming of Christ in the millennial kingdom here upon earth. Now, verse 21, he says, in speaking for God now, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not take delight in your solemn assemblies, though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meal offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take away from me the noise of thy songs." for I will not hear the melody of thine hearts. Now, here is the thing that he's saying that we have been repeating here. Back of these people going through the ritual were lives that were dishonest, and we're going to see the three national sins that that nation was guilty of. And it's the sins that have destroyed all nations, and they're sins that'll destroy our nation. But God's people need to recognize that their faith must be real, and faith is not fake or fable. It's reality. It's laying hold of a person. And believing is not deceiving. A great many people say, well, if you believe, why, it's because you're blind. It's a blind faith. Well, if it's a blind faith, forget it, because God doesn't accept that. Faith has to have an effect upon the life. Faith without works is dead. Okay, we're back to that whole discussion. Uh, Listen to our discussion on uh, the distinction between law and gospel. Don't have time to get into that now because we're already over an hour. James says, and that a living faith will produce that, and that we've been saved to produce good works. Paul says all of this is important. Now, these people... They were living lives of sin. They were engaged in idolatry, and yet they were going through all of this. And God says, I despise it. I have no use for it. Had you ever stopped to think that many of the song services that we think are so enthusiastic, you know, a group of people singing, a heart not in it, but a big mouth is in it, do you think maybe God has accepted it? What do you suppose he would think? And that was one of your special assignments is to consider this idea of how we can transgress in our worship. How is it that there are times we come to church and we're actually just transgressing and God does not accept it? I hope you've worked on that. We will return to that subject um, because uh, I think we, we need to really try to find the answer to that. If he came to my church or your church, what would be his viewpoint? Well, we better not deal with that. Now he says... But let justice run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chion, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Now, apparently the people in the wilderness, they went through a ritual, but when they would meet these heathen people, why they wanted to take on their gods. And you find 
So you can either look at the, the problem, the reason God would not accept their worship is because of their lifestyle or because God, or God was not accepting their worship because, well, they had taken up and accepted false gods. Like it's the idolatry. Everyone wants to say, because if you're not careful, you can create a situation. Well, hey, don't even come to church. God's not going to accept your worship if you're not living right. But I think it's more about their idolatry is the reason God is rejecting their worship. We, we, we could have a discussion there, but let's continue. The worship of Moloch was where children were put in the arms of a red-hot idol and made a sacrifice, and the screams of those children. Just remember, there is some discussion and some disagreement on that, that were the children placed on the arms of this statue that were burning hot and then the child burned to death? Or did they just set the child there, offered it to Moloch, and then picked the child back up, and then offered an animal. There is some disagreement about the history of that, and there's been some argument. You may just for, uh, we, we may, you, you, if you do a little research, tell me what you find. Tell me if you find if there's complete agreement on that, just just so that, you know, there has been some debate over that in, and at least, I, I don't know the first time I came across something that that challenged that that theory or claimed that that theory was not accurate, that ch- children actually burned to death. Uh, maybe the majority still go with that view, just so that you know, and it's something that you may want to look into. Were terrible, but that was the human sacrifice. Now, God says you can come to church on Sunday and go through the ritual of believing in me. But when you are worshiping Moloch during the week, when you are worshiping this idol of covetousness, when you go out after the almighty dollar, it was like Cardinal Woolsey. Remember when Henry VIII took away from him Hampton Court and was about to do away with him. Fortunately for Cardinal Woolsey, he died a natural death, but he wouldn't have had he lived. And on his deathbed, he said, if I had only served my God like I've served my king. And a great many Christians will have to say that on their deathbed. I have served the God of Moloch down here. I have served the idol of covetousness. I've served the idol of sin down here, the things of the flesh. I've worshipped those things, and I have not served my God. Now, friends, I don't care how sweet the music is going to be and what nice words the preacher will say at your funeral. But you and I are going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And I want to be very frank with you. That disturbs me somewhat. I want things straightened out down here as far as I'm concerned. Now, listen to him here. He says, verse 27, Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, that is, beyond Syria, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now, you see, Israel is to be punished in the future. What will be this? They're to go into captivity, and they're to go into captivity beyond Damascus, and beyond Damascus was Nineveh. The Assyrian would take them into captivity. And that concludes Amos chapter 5. There's a lot there to consider. There's a lot there to work on. There's a lot there to to think about. Um, 
I, I don't like the fact that he kept applying a lot of this to the world. The judgment upon this nation is a judgment upon God's people. So it should be a look. We should look at it, our lives to see, do we live like this? And just to understand, and I challenge you to, under, how do we understand hypocrisy? Is hypocrisy simply inconsistency or is hypocrisy when we pretend. So I want you to think about that. Um, I, I want you to think about how this should be applied to us. Um, he did talk a little bit about judgment. And so th- there's a lot there to consider. I would love to get your thoughts here. Um, this whole concept of woe unto you who looks for the day of the Lord. We've talked a little bit about that. Um, there, there's a number of things there. I wish we could dig a little bit more into this, but i um, I'll just leave it there and then wait to see what you have to say. Uh, we're, the reason I have to kind of bring this to an abrupt end, we're already at an hour and eight minutes. We could go another hour just now discussing everything, but I've given you a, a kind of a special assignment. I've given you that to work on. Whatever, put it this way. Anything that stands out to you in Amos chapter five that you think we need to go back on, email me, newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com, and we will return to it. There's going to be some things in this chapter that we will probably return to, um, but we can't cover it now. We can't cover it now, but oh, I I want to. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's hurting me to do so. Well, now, the goal is maybe this evening to go ahead and move on to chapter six, but... Um, because we're so far behind. But, oh, there's so much there. So I'll stop right there. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Those in the Discord channel, look, com- com- comments, discussion, questions, just start posting it there because if I need to later, I'll come back and instead of doing moving to chapter six, we'll do another episode uh, discussing some of the things you talk about in regards to chapter five. All right, I'm going to go. And I'll be back sometime this evening. All right, thanks for listening as we continue our journey through the book of Amos. May God bless you.